Today, we talk about everything newsletter, including how to maximize signups, why solving problems builds authority so quickly, and this game-changing tip for using curiosity to encourage click-throughs. Next on Making Bacon. So, hey there. I'm Jason Logston, and this is Making Bacon, all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Today's episode is brought to you by the Expert Video Roundup. If you worry you're not getting the most out of your brand partnerships, you're tired of signing off one-off deals, and you're feeling like you aren't making as much as you could, then let our experts show you the way at the next Expert Video Roundup, Working with Brands. This is an event I'm co-hosting with Megan Porta from Eat Blog Talk, and we've brought together experts from both sides of the aisle, including Jenny Melrose, Sandy Markle, Sally Eckes, Christina Peters, Yvette Marquez-Sharpnack, Doug Piper, Tamika Bazile, and many others. The event will be free on March 6th, and you can view it live there. We're going to do a nice big show around it, and you can sign up for that at evrshow.com slash brands. I'll put that in the comments. should be a great time, and I'm looking forward to learning a bunch from the experts as well. And remember, you can join us live every Thursday when we record these episodes. You can ask the guest questions, talk to the other bloggers in the comments, and even see our smiling faces. So join us Thursdays at makethatbacon.com slash live or search Making Bacon on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to the show. As bloggers, we are told time and time again that we need to collect our fans' email addresses. We need to build our mailing lists. We need to take advantage of that asset. What is the best way to do that? And what do you do once you have them? There's a lot of ins and outs to email marketing, and today's guest is the perfect person to show us how it all works. He is the creator of Email on Autopilot, the premier course for content creators that want to transform their email newsletter into their most powerful marketing tool. In addition to the course, he provides one-on-one consulting and personal coaching to some of the world's top bloggers. Outside of the office, he enjoys quiet walks on the beach, has a deep-rooted fear of frogs, and secretly dreams of replacing Pat Sajak. I can't wait to learn more from today's guest, Matt Mullen from Email Crush. Matt, welcome to Making Bacon. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here. So, frogs? Yeah, I probably shouldn't even mention that. That's like putting <laughs> that out. That's just like asking for trouble. But uh, yeah, no, that's, there's something about them. They're, they're, they're slimy and they jump. They're unpredictable. Uh, they do move quickly yeah and you're in arizona so you don't have a ton of frogs right you have more toads and yeah we strategically it's frog avoidance home strategy for sure that's good you've you know created your whole life around avoiding frogs (laughs) (laughs) we got uh, mike lachardi join us in the comments saying hey guys hope you're staying warm today Make sure uh, you all say hi and let us know you're here and uh, ask any questions and I'll be sure to pass them along. And I can't wait to dive into the ins and outs of email marketing. But before we get started, I always like to ask, what is it like around your dinner table on a typical day? <laughs> around our dinner table? Okay, that was unexpected. Well, I have, I have three children, two of which are grown and are in the process of moving out or one has moved out is off at college. And then I have a high school, you know, a teenager. And all of us are on different diets. I don't know what it is, but right now, so there's like four or five different meals going on if we're, if we're, if we're there together. That's just kind of how it is. I'm not eating carbs at any given time or something, and my wife has got some other concoction. So, But we have a great time together. It's fun having kids that are this age because they're, you know, you, you get them to this age, Jason, and you feel like, okay, now they're super fun. They have really fun. They say... 
interesting things and we have great <laughs> conversations and then they don't have want to have anything to do with us. So <laughs> what's that all about? They're finally part of the, the in crowd and now like you're not able to engage with them as much. Yeah. I, you know, we're not number one priority in their life anymore. <laughs> that's, that's a shame. Uh, what colleges are they looking at? Well, I've got one that just is doing esthetician school here. And then my, my son is at Brigham Young University in Utah. Oh, nice. I was in Utah for 15 years from like fourth oh, wow. grade up through college. I'm a University of Utah guy, though. Okay. All right. Maybe we can still get along here on this call. We'll have we'll, to we'll see. see. You know, <laughs> if you get dropped, there's definitely on purpose. There. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of having a mailing list. I mentioned it, I think, in every presentation I give, regardless of what I'm talking about, because it helps so many different aspects of blogging. But I'd love to hear your reasoning behind, you know, why do bloggers really need a good mailing list? Well, there's, there's a ton of reasons and some are more obvious than others. The ones that you hear the most about are, you know, you need to own your list. That's probably the most common thing, right? We don't mm -hmm. control what Zuckerberg or, or Google will do with any of their, their platforms or their properties. And our current streams of traffic, a lot of times are, we're dependent on somebody else, some other, third, some other party like that, especially those of us that are in the ad game. So Understanding that that can change at any given time and does change, and we don't control it, the number one thing to do is, is recognize that with email, if you can get somebody's email address, you have the means by which to share your content. I had this happen. My, my, my wife and I have a side hustle that is in the Disney cruise space. And guess what happened a, you know, March 15th of 2020 um, to our traffic? <laughs> um, at that time, all traffic was gone except for searches for how to cancel a, a Disney cruise. So for us, because we'd built a list, we were able to pivot, create new content that was related to the quarantine, related to Disney fun at home, that type of thing. And we were actually able to get it in front of people. And our ad revenue maintained during that time. That's a huge, huge save for us when you when you consider that all searches and all traffic, incoming traffic basically disappeared. So that's 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 reason number one. The less less commonly thought of reasons are when you use email the right way, you can create an actual relationship and engagement in a way that a lot of other marketing medium do not allow. So think about how intimate it can be if I know your email address and you know mine. We can deliver messages that will land in front of each other with a pretty good deal of reliability. There's a good chance that if, if I can solve your problem over and over again, I can convert you into a super fan. And I can guide you down some sort of branded journey that I create that ultimately solves your problems one step at a time, but is much more thought out than, oh, hey, here's a, here's a new blog post and let me blast it out to you. And so... All of those reasons, along with, of course, the ad game is changing here soon with third-party cookies going away or being modified and whatever's going to happen there. I'm not an expert in that space, but, but email is being talked about as a way to, to identify people who visit our websites and then ultimately help us to, to enjoy ongoing strong ad revenue. So there's so many reasons why, and if you're ever going to sell anything beyond just making money off of ads, man, the list is where it's at. Yeah. The big ways that I use my list are one to kind of build that initial rapport with someone that might not know me very well and show them that 
how I work, show them that I am an expert in my field. And we'll get into some uh, ways about how you can do this, because I know you're a big proponent of that. But it's by giving them content, solving their problems and showing them you know, what I kind of know and that I am an expert in the field. And the other way that was hugely valuable for me was when I was self-publishing is you get up to your book launch, put out a blast to my my fans that are on my newsletter who I've trained over the last previous years to click on my emails and open them. And I usually have 30 to 35% open rates. And that would lead to enough book sales to get me on the what is hot on Amazon book list. And that would then drive Amazon doing some promotion of my book and help do that entire launch, which I could have never been as successful at if I wouldn't have had my, my email list. That's fantastic. Yeah, what a great use, is, use of that. And if you have, like you said, if you have been solving the, that audience's problems on an ongoing basis, you've built trust up to this point. So when you do have something to sell, presto, your free stuff was awesome to date. Your, your paid stuff is probably next level. And mm -hmm. so they're probably all in. Yeah, I see a lot of people use it as well to direct traffic that if you're doing a sponsored post that you really want to impress the company you're working with, like you can use that in your mailing list. It's if you cultivate it in the right way, you have their attention and you can direct it in whichever manner you want. As long as you don't take advantage of that, you know, in a negative way, then they'll continue to be interested in the type of content you're you're sharing. Yeah, the ultimate thing, I mean, it, it comes down to... The answer to most marketing problems is what problem are you solving for your customer? Mm -hmm. The same thing is true for email. You know, maybe your latest post isn't necessarily the best thing to send. Maybe that doesn't solve your reader's problem at that time. Maybe you're creating a, a you know, a recipe, pineapple coleslaw. That, you know, you've been blogging for 10 years and you finally get to pineapple coleslaw. Is that the best thing that you've ever come up with? Is that the perfect thing for me right now uh, at this time of year and what I'm thinking about? Maybe, maybe not. If it's not, then think through what problem are you solving and use email to, to do that. And, you know, as a general rule of thumb, that's going to get you much, much further, have better engagements, better opens and clicks, longer subscribers, super fans. I think it was Doug Levy that said, every time you communicate with your audience, make sure that you know exactly what you're trying to communicate and what you're trying to accomplish through that. And I think a newsletter is something that falls through the cracks a lot, that it is like, oh, here's my latest post. It's not, you know, what do, what do I actually want people, my audience to do right now? And how can I communicate that with them? Yeah. And people are discovering, discovering us at different times. So, you know, if you're getting any sort of traffic right now, and have for some time, there's people at every step, different step of the journey. So uh, being able to use email to cater to people at where they are and how much they know about you, you know, this concept of pineapple coleslaw, sure, the person who's been with you for a decade is ready for your pineapple coleslaw. But <laughs> you know what you probably have for a new subscriber, you probably have some stuff that you would <laughs> stack rank much higher than pineapple coleslaw. There's yep. nothing wrong with pineapple coleslaw. I just, have, I don't know why I'm picking on that. <laughs> well, why, why do you hate pineapple? Yeah, it's <laughs> a typ typical BYU, you know, no, no, uh, dad it's, thing. It's the, hating uh, it's, pineapple coleslaw. That's right. It's the, it's the food of frogs, probably. Mike Lashardi asks, what is considered a good, in quotes, open rate for <laughs> emails? Okay. So for Mike and for everybody else, the answer, as it is with most marketing things, is it depends. Okay, so let's think through the, the factors. The factors for a good open rate are how did you acquire that subscriber? 
How many do you have? How frequently do you communicate and send emails? How on point is your topic? How, how general or how narrow is your topic? So in my world, for example, I can tell you that I can send an email to my Disney Cruise segment and it's gonna get a much, much higher open rate than my general Disney fund. That's why I'm really reluctant to say, what's a good open rate? If you're doing, if your means of, of growing your list is uh, Visa gift card giveaways, I'm gonna tell you good luck with your open rate. But if, if you're going super duper narrow and you're like, subscribe for air fryer updates, then those people are probably gonna open a ton of them, but you're not gonna get a lot of people in there, right? So, so it, that was me punting a little bit, Mike. It's, <laughs> it's a tough one to answer. I get that one quite regularly. The, the, the best thing is do better than what you did. It's like you know, your, own, your own personal re record. How do we keep improving over what we have? Do I need to prune my list out? Is my list engaged? If they're not, they're probably cold and it's time to move on and you can increase your open rates and probably your deliverability as a result of doing that too. So it's a bigger question. And Mike, it's, it's tougher to answer that unless we go into your particular circumstance. You mentioned a few ways to get people to sign up. What are ways that you have found to be effective to maximize the amount of people you're getting in that are relevant? Like you said, it's easy to get people to sign up, give them a hundred dollar you know gift card, but they're never going to click on anything. And right. if you go super niche, people will love it, but you're only get a handful of people. So where what have you found is a good balance between those? Sure. So the the thing to understand is that your existing traffic is your number one source for list growth, okay? That's the easiest way to grow your list is if, if you're on here and you're just getting started, take heart. As the traffic comes in, you'll still be able to maximize it. But if you have any sort of traffic coming in right now or you have eyeballs on a social platform, that's also that also works. The idea is to have you exchange, you, you're, we're all familiar with this concept of a lead magnet, right? Where you're just giving a something of value in exchange for an email address. Well. There's lots of different types of lead magnets. There's printables, there's eBooks, there's courses, there's you know uh, challenges. There's all sorts of different things, and I've used them all. I like them all, but the challenge, the the difficulty that you have with many email hooks or many lead magnets is many of them are not quite. Sometimes they cost too much to make, or they require a certain level of skill to make. Maybe take a lot of time to get out there. Or maybe they're just not that great at attracting your target reader, the one that you really can serve best. That's why I use most frequently, especially in the food blogging world, I use a concept called a quick start guide. Now let's, before I dive into that, let's take a, a step back. Somebody who's landing on a food website quite frequently comes from a search, Google, Pinterest, whatever. That person is hungry. That person is in what I call transaction mode. She does not care about you. She does not care about your logo. She doesn't care about your URL. She knows that the next time she gets hungry, she can go to Google again and get a reasonable result because that's what Google does. So when she's consuming your recipe, the, one of the great things to do is to, is, is, is to introduce a quick start guide at that time, whether it's a pop-up or some sort of form. And the idea here is that you can use your existing content to create a five three to five part email series. Now in this series, 
it might be, let's say somebody's landing on a cake recipe. You could have, you know, my secrets to delicious baked goods, my secrets to amazing desserts. You know, obviously, that we could do much better than that as far as the titles, <laughs> but you get the idea. Then over the next three to five days in a row, that person can get secrets or tips from you that are mostly the recipes to bring them back to your website so that they go from not knowing who you are that over three to five days in a row, they've received an email from you. Think about that. This person who didn't know you at all, it was a Google or Pinterest search, has now given you permission to be in their inbox for three to five days in a row. Powerful. And so that's how you can convert that person from not really knowing or caring to all of a sudden going, oh, wow, Jason's got some great stuff. I love his recipes. And every time he emails me something, there's, there's a little nugget in there that's, that's fantastic. So I use, in the food world, I use the, the Quick Start Guide pretty regularly. And I teach the, the, the ins and outs of that in the course, the details of exactly how to set it up. But you don't even need me for that. It's pretty, pretty straightforward if you just adopt this type of concept. Bye. My Amazing Food Made Easy is all about sous vide. And our the main lead magnet that we're pushing right now is literally called the sous vide quick start guide. That it oh. is exactly what you're talking about. That it's, I think, seven emails. I had to write um, some copy for kind of like structure it to make sure that I was, in my mind, it's someone that doesn't know sous vide and talking about solving problems. It's how can I get them to start using their sous vide device and feel confident with it? And so that way they can then come back and see the you know 400 recipes I have. And so I had to write the content for there, but in each one of those, I then have it pointing out to recipes on my blog that kind of support what was in the email. And my first email says like, Hey, I'm glad you're here. What's your biggest challenge with sous vide? Tell me what you're struggling with and how can I help you? And it opens up those ways of communication back and forth as well, which now they know I'm a real person. You know, I have, I think it's about 20% of people that sign up actually email me right back. And so we kind of get that rapport that they know who I am and I'm not just this nameless pop-up. <laughs> Basically, they yeah. put their email into. Yeah, it, you, you created subject matter expertise by solving their next problem. They were landing on a page where they're learning about sous vide and they, they obviously had some interest in that, in that when they were making that search query or whatever brought them there. And by you providing the next answer, the answer to their next problem, boom. Now all of a sudden Jason is goes from nameless, I don't know who he is, to, oh, every time Jason sends me something, I'm learning more about this thing that I'm invested and interested in. And that's how we can use email for branding. And it's not just at the beginning. We can use that. We can do that same technique for the life cycle of the subscriber as well. Mike with the sous vide joke, he says, is it actually a quick start when a cook takes 72 hours <laughs> or 72 hours short ribs? Uh, yeah, I stick to the chicken and fish and uh, tender steaks and we hit the, uh, the three-day cooks down the road. <laughs> There's lots of ways to present a quick start regardless of what type of lead magnet it is, there's pop-ups, there's kind of these sidebar boxes. What have you found to be effective? I always struggle with like pop-ups that whenever we have them, we increase our signups, but I don't know if we're increasing valuable signups or just we're increasing the number because some amount of people that don't know how to get out of it, put in their email address, <laughs> which isn't valuable, you know? 
Yeah, that 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 could be so, but my guess is that it's not as many as you're worried about. And if and if that happens, just simply adopt a you know, my answer to that is I'm going to be an aggressive list builder, but I'm also going to be an aggressive list pruner. Is that the word? Where I'm going to clean these out on a regular basis. So I'm not paying for more. So my deliverability and opens don't, don't suffer. So uh, we kind of talked about it already. Pop-ups, probably not uh, a surprise to anybody, but pop-ups are the most effective on a conversion uh, rate basis. And I think it's worth talking about kind of the annoying factor of pop-ups. If you think about pop-ups, what makes something annoying? Let's go back. Let's go back to somebody who did that Google search, doesn't know you, lands on a website. What most of us are doing, you know, guys and girls out there, we are doing subscribe for updates. Don't miss a recipe. When was the last time you did that on after a Google search or a Pinterest search? People don't want more emails in their life. They want less. And they want more relevance and they want more answers to their problems. So if the reason pop-ups are mostly annoying is because we aren't, we, aren't, we aren't doing it the right way. So number one, allow, if you're going to do a pop-up, allow your audience, your reader to engage with the content that you have, the reason that she came there to begin with. Next, you know, give it a little bit of time for them to, to, for, for them to process that information and make it so that when a pop-up does happen, it's real easy to, to get out of. We don't need these big, massive things that take up a whole screen. We also don't need to make them click the little X. Make them click around it, you know, and, and it'll go away. But I'll tell you that when we do a pop-up the right way, meaning you solve their next problem, it works like a charm. Here's an example. Smoking Hot Wife and I have that Disney Cruise related website I was telling you about. Uh, you land on Disney Cruise Tips. What is that? What do I know about you? Well, I know that you're most likely either about to book or you have booked because otherwise, why would you be here? So the, the, our pop-up is what to expect on your first Disney cruise. That's our quick start guide. What to expect on your first Disney cruise. So the person that's looking for tips is probably also looking for that. And that thing converts like crazy. It went from being annoying to, oh, that could help me. And so, so you go from you're going from like interrupting what they're trying to accomplish to maybe making them aware that you have information that they might not even know that they're actually looking for that could suit what they are actually trying to get at better than what they're currently on. That's right. It's just saying, look, I, I've been down around this corner. You're looking at Disney Cruise tips. I get it. I did, too. And I can tell you exactly what to expect when you go on a, on a Disney cruise. So, yeah, I mean, the, there's other means as well. You know, hello bars sticky up at the top. You you know, there's ways to do this in a mobile experience that aren't so annoying and without getting into a ton of technical specifics. Obviously, user experience matters. Customer, their experience on your site matters a ton. So, but the higher up above the fold we are, the more you're going to convert. It's just a trade-off that you have to decide how important is it to you. For me, I've seen the money that can be made. I've seen the loyalty that can be built, and I will always default to investing more of my real estate on my website to email list growth than probably most people will, because I know that this movie has a happy ending. Yes. I know what your answer to this next question is that Lisa D from Lisa D's Delights asks, I'm curious to see how you approach this. She says, I came on late, so forgive me if this was addressed already, but is email marketing almost dead? She really checks her emails anymore, and personally, she's a text person. So what is 
this email overload, this 10 years ago was like a golden age of email marketing. And I, you know, you can't expect that when it is a new medium in a lot of cases, but what do you see as email marketing moving forward in a, as a good part of someone's strategy? Yeah. No, I mean, just like anything, there's, 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 there's smart ways to go about it. And then there's everything else. So as far as the statistics are showing us that email marketing isn't dead, in fact, it's as strong as it ever has been. How you use it might have changed a little bit. How you communicate, whether you use it to communicate with mom anymore, or do you just text mom to have those conversations? But it is still a a super valuable marketing medium. And in fact, of all of the marketing medium, the media that is out there, it is historically has the highest ROI. So if you use it right, you absolutely can benefit. What does that mean? That means that people are actually using it. So many people have email addresses. How do you use it individually could vary from what everybody else does. But for the most part, if we are able, like I said, to provide emails that are that will that solve a reader's problem over and over and over again, have compelling subject lines to get people to entice them to open, you're going to have much better success. So if you're looking at it from a, should I bother to invest in it? I guess it depends on your goals. If you like repeat traffic, sure. If you like to sell stuff, sure. If you, if you like to establish yourself as a subject matter expert in a super highly competitive space where the barrier to entry is, I mean, anybody with a laptop can become a food blogger now. Then I highly suggest that you, you, uh, you spend some time and invest here. But I certainly understand that. And I, I get that quite regularly. Well, my kids don't even use email. Well, you know what? I just had, I've had a daughter that has just gone into the, the career workforce who is never into email. All of a sudden, she has to use email <laughs> just like the rest of us. But yes, she was a Snapchat kid, right? Text everywhere. And email is huge in corporate America. And, and most of our, for most of us, our target demographic is not teenagers. So, We've got a few hundred thousand people signed up for our mailing list or five or 10, you know, we're getting started. They've gone through that initial lead magnet. We've kind of started to build up some of this trust. What is the best way to serve them now that they have been a fan of ours for, let's say a week up through 10 years, you know, how do we continue to solve problems and put good content in front of them? First of all, I believe that there's been so many advances in email marketing that are super cool that a lot of people are not taking advantage of. A lot of us are familiar with the concept of drip sequences, funnels, et cetera, et cetera. But really what we're saying here is that you is that there's this automation that can be had. So let's talk about a very real way that you could use email marketing automation as a food blogger to your benefit. We have some sort of opt-in. We get people onto our list. Now, you, you, I don't know if you caught the difference here, but I'm not launching with a welcome series. So this is a little controversial because this is the traditional advice. But let's go back to that person, how we're discovering that person. Person is finding us because they did a Google query and they're landing on your short ribs. Now, they don't care about you. Over the course of three to five days in a row, or in your case, seven days in a row, they're starting to get to know you. Now they're, you've built up some trust. So what do you send them next? Well, let's go back to my pineapple coleslaw example. If you're, if that's the next blog post that you made, somebody, and you've been blogging for years and years and years, but this person just joined you 
is pineapple coleslaw the best representation for of you and what you've got to offer? So let's take this concept of this welcome series that people are kind of familiar with, and let's turn it into what I call a forever series. A forever series is basically an evergreen sequence of your greatest hits put in the order that makes sense for your reader. Now, in the case of food, sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's, you know, there isn't necessarily a logical pattern. In my world with the Disney Cruise audience, email number one is always the most powerful Disney Cruise tip I ever, I ever learned. Email number two in the series is what to pack. Email number three is how to avoid getting seasick. Email number four is what happens on the private island. There is a smart way to funnel that. Now, if it doesn't matter for you with food, then start with what would you make to impress your mother-in-law? You know, mm -hmm. start there. Start with the favorites. Start with the stuff that's, that helps you stand out so that when they go try that recipe, bam, it's amazing. And the great thing about this is that you can create these emails, put it into this automation, automated sequence and, and build on that. I call it a forever series because it could literally have as many emails in it as you want. It could go on forever, technically. And once they're set, they're just running. Email number one, then week later, email number two, then email number three. Now, you may be wondering, what do I do about my current stuff? What do I do about my new stuff? What do I do about Christmas cookies when Christmas comes along? Well, most food bloggers can stand to send two emails a week. There's <laughs> enough content out there and you are prolific and awesome enough that your audience would enjoy receiving an additional email from you. So this concept of a, the old fashioned concept of a newsletter, right? For me, I replaced that with what's seasonally appropriate right now. And I send that one per week. But then I've also got this forever series email that is automated. And so that's how I typically build out for my clients. That's kind of the starter kit, if you will, if you're not doing a whole lot of other things. I don't love RSS driven emails as the default. Mm -hmm. Because that's saying, I got onto your list and all of a sudden you're gonna, you know, you're gonna send me every single recipe, the most current stuff. You know, that's an RSS driven email is basically a machine telling another machine that that previous machine was updated. <laughs> Not very personal. But instead, if you send me, guys, here are my five favorite pantry staple recipes in the middle of a winter storm. That might be a little bit more relevant right now for some, mm -hmm. some audiences. Or if I'm doing a forever series, I might say, you know, here's my, my five greatest recipes for weight loss, solving a problem and it's universal, it's evergreen and it's always, it's always a need. That's something that I always have struggled with. It was nice knowing that you were coming on. I was like, I better do a little bit of research to see exactly what he's, <laughs> he's talking about. I've watched some of your presentations and I was like going through, I was like, oh good, this is like 90% of what I do. So at least I'm not going to look like a complete fool on, on here. You know, I don't need my team hearing this to be like, well, Jason told us to do the exact opposite of all of this six months ago or something. Right. But so I, I do have kind of like a forever series that it is like, you know, here's my best recipes. Here's the best content coming out, but I've always struggled with, you know, how do I put in those either seasonal or, you know, I do a weekly podcast on sous vide as well. And it's like, how do I alert people to that when I am do, doing speaking events? How do I alert people while still not, you know, still having the automated ones? So that makes sense. Just kind of add in a, here's what's live or currently very relevant. And, yeah. and I guess if it's your second one, people, 
if you miss a week now or then because you are busy doing stuff, no one's going to notice because they're still getting your forever series constantly updating. Right. That's right. And and the other the other uh, side of that is true as well. The benefit of having a forever series running is maybe you're going to go have a baby. Maybe you get sick. Mm-hmm. Maybe you go on vacation. Maybe maybe Disney cruises kind of stop for a little while, and <laughs> and there's no new real content to create. Okay. Well, there's still some forever series emails that can be sending out, bringing people tra- traffic back to your website. Mike says, is there any data on how long your newsletter or email should be before you start to lose people with too much content? I don't. So good question, Mike. I don't have any hard and fast studies, but the, the rule of thumb is that people don't read, they skim, especially when we're talking about email. So when I teach how to write emails, I'm usually talking with that uh, with that principle in mind. Get to the point. And so my emails <laughs> are actually kind of this template. State the problem. Tell me I have a solution to the problem. Give them the link to the solution. It does not have to be long. Your emails don't have to be long. We don't monetize inside the email client. We monetize on our websites when ads are shown. We monetize when they land on a, on a shopping cart page or sales page. We don't monetize in the email. So let's get them to the place that we've invested. So short sentences, no big blocks of text. I call those those big, long paragraphs. People don't read those. Use formatting to your advantage. Subheaders, break it up. Make your emails really easy to read. They don't have to be long. There are, there are some people that believe that, you know, the way of email messages will kind of go the, the length of a tweet. I don't know if that's true or not, but it illustrates the point of our attention span and what might happen within this particular means of communication. And I would say too that if you're if you're out there and you're worried about sending too many emails, if you're if the second email that you send is just like, "Hey, I know that it's snowing right now. Here's some links to my best pantry recipes." Like people aren't going to unsubscribe because you're sending them too many emails if you literally just send them a paragraph of text with a link to a more detailed article if they want it. You're solving their problem if they need it, but you're not taking up, you know, tons of time by making them read through a bunch of stuff. It's not spam if you're providing value. A lot of people go back and forth about whether you should have images in your newsletters or your emails. And I know that these are all things that you can A-B test and get stats for your own specific audience. But what have you seen as a general rule of thumb, especially for food bloggers? I feel like it is a different audience you're reaching out to and, you know, a big picture of, I could see with Disney cruise too, a, a nice picture of your of what you're gonna be doing on your cruise could entice people where if you're writing about email marketing, like an image might not matter as much. Right. No, I think you hit it there. It's it's know your audience. It used to be that we were worried about images affecting deliverability. Like does it does it used to be that we were concerned that an image might be a signal that this this should be junk or this is goes into the promo tab more readily or whatever. We're just not as worried about that anymore because it's more about your sender reputation that guides those things. So having said that, let's still keep in mind a couple of rules of thumb. With food, people eat with their eyes first, usually. So, and if you've invested all this time and energy and money into great food photography, it'd be nice to include that in an email, but we don't need to overdo it either. So the same rules that apply to the, to the web today, as far as what type of images, and what I mean by that is, People don't want to scroll forever, okay? My, my thumb is old and decrepit. It barely <laughs> works as it is. So let's keep our images. They don't need to be magazine size, okay? Mm-hmm. So 
I typically recommend, you know, 400 pixels wide, maybe a, you know, a, a horizontal or landscape image instead of a vertical portrait image mm -hmm. or a square is a good second best. And just make it easy for people to scroll through, still get the concept, get the image and then click through. So that's, so yeah, great question, but I, I use images all the time, but we don't need to go hogwog crazy either. You mentioned in your series, having good email subjects. That's something I always struggle with. I don't know the best way to approach it. And I feel like this is even, even in when I'm just like emailing somebody, I overthink probably what my subject is when I'm sending a, like a potential podcast guest an email. I'm like, oh, what should this subject be? What have you found to be subjects to pull people in without misleading? Okay, so rule number one in the food blogging space is words like vegetables don't get opened. And world, <laughs> words like chocolate chip cookie do. <laughs> okay, I'm only partially kidding there. I've not done a deep dive on the science on that one. Here's my subject line formula that I like the best. It is curiosity plus self-interest. So if you put that as a little sticky note right here on your machine, and then every time you make a subject line or you brainstorm subject lines, use that as a filter. If you said, let's go back to my pineapple coleslaw. If I said pineapple coleslaw, which quite frequently is the RSS subject line driven that's created from the RSS feed, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting that email at seven in the morning. When was the last time you had a hankering for pineapple coleslaw at seven in the morning? <laughs> Delete, moving on. But if the subject line instead says what I make for every family barbecue or my, my family's favorite side dish, now we're top, tapping into something more than just do I like pineapple coleslaw. We're tapping into what the additional problems are it solves. And there's a little bit of a tease factor there that I need to know what this is. Now, of course, you've got to pay it off because we could have things like how to lose 50 pounds in three days, which is usually... Pineapple coleslaw. <laughs> <laughs> the pineapple coleslaw diet could be huge, Jason. <laughs> that subject line is a little bit ridiculous. And so if you... But it certainly fits that, that criteria, right? What's the, what's the self-interest? Well, we could all stand to lose a few. My curiosity is how they do that in three days. So something like that works if you have the goods to pay it off. So, so yeah, the more we can tease a little bit, but tap into what they really want, it's a muscle that you have to exercise for sure. And you get better with it over time. The other little tip I'll leave with you guys, with you guys and gals, is basically do not skimp on the time that you spend on a subject line. I often say you might want to consider spending as much time on that subject line as you did on the rest of the email. And I usually write the subject line after I write the body of the email because I get a better sense of where it's going and, 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 and how to tie them together. But because if they don't open it, we've lost, you know, it's the gateway to the soul of the email. <laughs> and the subject line. So we want to get them in. Yeah. Cause it doesn't matter how good of an email you write. If they're never enticed to open it, they'll never see it. So yeah, exactly. Have you found like length is one thing, but there's also like the amount of content in it can be another. Have you found it's more effective for like food bloggers to be like, you know, here is my pineapple salsa recipe, or is it good to give them a variety of like, here's my pineapple salsa, here's this, here's this, here's that. Especially if you've been blogging for a long time and you can do a forever series with, you know, three or four recipes in it without really going too deep out of your you know, your fate, your top recipes. Sure. 
No, I have no problem with having multiple recipes in an email. What I what I caution people to do is to try not to to do too many things with an email. Mm-hmm. So the what we're what we're trying to do is solve one problem per email. Now, sometimes, especially especially with food, there's a variety to solve the same problems. So what what to make for the perfect Easter brunch? Well, you could have something related to eggs. You could have a pancake thing. You could have a savory thing. You could have somebody that has uh, dietary restrictions of such and such type. So you could cater to all those. There could be five recipes in there that would that would hit people's different taste buds and and and, and health needs. And presto, you're solving the same Easter brunch problem. What I don't love are the emails. Now, some people can get away with this. It's all about voice and brand and whatnot. But for the most part, especially in the food world where you aren't necessarily Martha Stewart yet, <laughs> the well, here's a picture of my cats, and here's where here's what I bought at the at the farmer's market today. And by the way, it is raining a lot here in Tennessee. And yeah, you know, the, just on and on and on. Get to the point, solve my problem. Now, again, that's a that's a generalization that I'm just, you know, you have to interpret that for you. Marketing is more art than it is science. I'm just giving you that general generalization. Taylor Swift, for example. I mean, of course, Jason, you know Taylor Swift's the name of Taylor Swift's cats. You know, <laughs> of course, Meredith, yes. Meredith Benson and Olivia Gray. No, <laughs> Olivia Benson and Meredith Gray. Sorry, <laughs> you were going to correct me there. So, um, so embarrassing, Matt. So embarrassing when you messed that up. But <laughs> we don't we don't need to know the names of Taylor Swift's cats until we've heard Blank Space on the radio a few times and fallen in love with that. So solve my initial problems and build that up. And then, then we can do that. But but if you start, if you go in other places and you lose my focus, then you have a much a reduced chance of turning me into a super fan. Awesome. Do you do anything to encourage clicks within the email? Do you prefer just saying like, here's my recipe. I have the great subject. I have like, here's the problem I have. My pineapple salsa will solve it. Or do you, you know, do you do a click now button? Do you do a, something that's more jumps out visually? What's do you found that works well? Yeah. So if we go back to that concept that people don't read, that they skim. Mm-hmm. So you can write your email and you can detail what problem you're solving. But then something like a subheader that, that, that says, how I overcame X. Mm-hmm. And then you have your little details. And then you say, the very best short ribs in the world. You know, and then a big old button that you can't miss. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't matter as much what the button says. That's that. that well, that's not true. It does matter a lot, but you need to A/B test that. Right. Uh, but I don't have some rule of thumb that says, "Well, use get the recipe," or say, "I want it," or say the name of the recipe. There. It's more about the setup. Did I adequately state that I have a? Or clarify what the problem is that you're solving, and here's the link to get the solution to the problem. So. State the problem, tell them you have the solution to the problem, and give them a link to the solution. Big link, big button. You just don't want them, you know, they're on their phone. They're going like this. Number one, a nice big button makes it easy to click uh, for somebody with a slow, fat thumb like me. I'm exhausted just doing that. And then, uh, <laughs> if not that, then make your make your font size on your link bigger. I mean, it, this is not... This isn't the this isn't the design center here. All right, we need, we need people to click through. So, of course, you want pretty design, but you get my point. You talked about, you know, pruning your list or culling your list, people call it. I do mine every six to 12 months and basically remove people who haven't opened any messages during that time. Like, is that 
good? Am I way too slow, too aggressive? Like what, how do you find a good way to kind of maintain your list of people that are want to hear from you without, you know, kicking someone to the curb that maybe to reverse your example, you know, had a baby and are like, well, I don't really care about, you know, your party emails right now because I'm not doing anything for, for three months, but might be interested again down the road. Now, if you're following my program, which is some sort of quick start guide or multiple opt-ins like that, and then you're emailing on a regular basis, like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm assuming that there's, you know, two emails a week or something going, it does not take very long before to figure out if somebody is engaged or not. So yeah, it, it, again, the answer is it depends and it depends on what your goals are. If, you're, if your goals are to, you want to build up a nice big list so that when you sell something that you've got a bigger audience that has a, they have a chance to fog a mirror and maybe pull out their wallet, mm-hmm. that person or that blogger might want to be more conservative about the pruning. If, if it's primarily, look, cost is important to me. I want the highest possible open rates. And I am aggressively growing my list, but I will also aggressively prune it out. I can see that too. That's usually where most of my clients fall is they're pruning once a quarter. It's usually pretty good. Some people are super cost conscious and they're growing fast using my techniques. And so they prune monthly, which if you think about it, is somebody who came into the quick start guide got three to five emails in a row. Then they got a couple of forever series or, or three to four forever series emails, three to four broadcasts or newsletters. So they've gotten a lot of emails yeah. and we kind of know, are they, how much do they dig in this? Do you do anything besides just unsubscribing them? Do you send them a, Hey, do you still want these emails? Email? I do. Yeah. There's, there's a, I do have a win back process that basically says, Hey, you know, I only want to send emails to people who really want to get them. Is that you? And then if they click it, Number one, even if they open it with the software that I use, when they open it, it takes them out of that cold subscriber group. And then, you know, it keeps sending to them. And if they click a button that says, yes, I want to keep receiving these, then I know these people are a little bit slower. They only check their emails once in a while or they had an issue or, and I give them more grace for the next time. And it kind of takes them out of the pruning pool. That was a little more complicated than I needed probably to go into. But the answer is yes, I have a, I have a win back process that I go through. That helped me too, because I I had sent out one of those like a win back process when I when I do it, and sometimes I do get emails from people that are like, yeah, like I opened every one of your emails, but they're probably on Linux or something, and it's not you know clicking that this person has opened this email. They have privacy settings that are yeah you know. yeah that is a fair that is a fair point that with so many different email clients out there, you know they're they're pretty close approximations of opens and engagement, but. None of them are perfect. They're relying on on a certain set of pixels to be communicated, or uh, and, and uh, messages between the providers to be uh, to, to give us that information. So yeah, that's a good point. That is what I had for you. Uh, Mike has a great question here. He says, "Not sure if you're able to recommend specific products, but what email you know do you recommend either for someone getting started or for someone that's been doing this for a while?" I do my system specifically on ConvertKit. In fact, my course email and autopilot is like half strategy, which you could do on any system if you take the time to figure it out, you know, whether you're using MailChimp or MailerLite or Mad Mimi or ActiveCampaign or whatever it is that you're using. And But I've just found that ConvertKit was the easiest for me with my system. And that was after a lot of trial and error with a bunch of different platforms. There are lots of great platforms out there. It's really hard to 
to keep up with all of them. And on my, on my website, I've got some reviews of different ones, the most, most prevalent ones. But yeah, I, I do use ConvertKit quite regularly and, and it's, my, it's my platform of choice right now. Nice. I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much knowledge. You have, you know, you do consulting, you have run a course. Can you talk a little bit about the services that you offer? Because we just, you know, scratched the surface of a lot of the strategy and a lot of the techniques that you teach. So if people are interested in more information, talk a little bit about the ways that they can get that from you. Yeah, well, thanks. The opportunities for somebody who's wanting to grow their list fast, who wants to know what to send that will get opened and clicked and use email marketing automation in some of the ways that we've been talking about here today, the place to start is with the course email on autopilot. Now that's some people aren't course people. I get that. If that, if, but if you follow the course step-by-step, step, I've had, I've had, I've had hundreds of people go through that course and have a lot of great success. Many, many food bloggers fall into that. If, if you're not a course person though, and you're a little bit more advanced and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're interested in working more of a one-on-one -on -one relationship. I do have an engagement where I will work with you six to eight weeks. Basically what I do is I get access to your existing uh, email provider, your Google analytics, so that I can make some recommendations to you about what would I do with your list. Then that's the basis for that six to eight week engagement where I will share with you the technique to grow the list, what I would do specifically, and I'll help you set that up. You'll write it. I'll give you some guidance and pointers, copyright, copy editing, and we'll get that set up for you. Oh, if you use if you use my, you know, if you use uh, ConvertKit, I'll do the setup for you. And then if, and then on top of that, I'll teach you about single versus double opt in. I'll teach you about GDPR rules. I'll teach you about pruning the list. I'll teach you about pop ups versus other types of opt ins. By the time we're done, you'll have a sparkly new system where hopefully you're. <laughs> Your list is growing fast and you know what to do with it now. Now that when you're in the shower and you that magical idea chamber, you've got ideas for your business, you know how to use email to affect that. Awesome. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing all your expertise. I learned a lot. I'm sure the people listening learned a lot as well. If people want more, they can get more for, about your email course at emailcrush.com. So thank you very much for coming on Making Bacon. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you so much to everyone in the comments that were commenting and asking questions. Remember, you can join us live every Thursday when we record these episodes. You can ask the guest questions, talk to the other bloggers in the comments, and even see our smiling faces. So join us Thursdays at makethatbacon.com slash live or search for Making Bacon on your favorite podcast platform. This has been Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Until next time, I'm Jason Logston. See you next Thursday.